Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we are engaging in a bit of chemistry. We'll be joined by three scientists from three different fields of study, as well as a fellow science enthusiast, to talk about the science news that made headlines and some stories that might have been missed in the first few weeks of 2019. It's Undisciplined's very first science news roundup, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today, we're going to try something new. In our first ever monthly science news roundup, we'll be joined by three researchers plus a fellow science enthusiast to take a look at the recent science news through a bunch of different perspectives. Joining us on the line today is Grace Dorenzo, a disease, population, and community ecologist and herpetologist who last joined us in October to talk about tropical animals that have evolved to beat deadly diseases. Grace, welcome back to Undisciplined. Thanks for having me. Also on the phone is Shafali Pottle, an expert in organizational and group decision-making who last joined us in November when we talked about the ways fear and misunderstanding plays into the on-the-job decisions of police officers. Shafali, thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Matthew. Excited to be on again. And in studio with us, just a few weeks after his first visit to Undisciplined, is biologist Joseph Wilson, who I'm guessing is still sorting through the hundreds of bees he helped identify in Utah's Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Hey, Joseph. Hey. Also sharing our studio today and making her debut on Undisciplined is Sheena McFarland, a communications professional and former journalist whose work includes covering astronomy. She also has a degree in biology teaching and remains an ardent science enthusiast. Sheena, thanks for being with us today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for the invite. Let's start today on Luna. That is the hauntingly beautiful voice of the British singer Claire Torrey on The Great Gig in the Sky, which is, of course, from Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. And that's where we are going to start our conversation today. Just before 10.30 a.m. Beijing time on January 3rd, a robotic spacecraft from China made a successful landing near the moon's south pole. And while there have been dozens of moon missions over the past 60 years, this was the first landing on this unexplored area, which is a part of the moon that is never visible from Earth. So, guys, how big of a deal is this? What do you think? I think this is a really fascinating moment in space history, and I'm really thrilled to find out what we end up discovering. Joseph, what did you think when you heard we were going to the dark side of the moon? You know, uh, kind of embarrassingly, I was kind of surprised we hadn't been there before. So it was kind of fascinating to think that that this is barely happening in in 2019. I also thought it was pretty interesting that I hadn't thought about that um, probe that they sent there. It can't communicate directly with Earth. There's a moon in the way. And so it has to be relayed through a satellite that's flying around the moon. It's just pretty fascinating. Which is probably one of the reasons why we've struggled to study that part of the moon in the past. Is it's, It's hard to get the information back to Earth. Exactly. Shafali, Grace, you guys have thoughts on this? Like, what does it mean to you that we're exploring this whole different thing that we've never, we've never even laid eyes on, really? So I think this is a really interesting time for, for human beings. And this pro- 
provides us the opportunity to transcend national boundaries here on Earth and working towards a common goal. So looking at human society, I'm really op- optimistic that the data and the results from this project will be freely available to the public. We'll have great discussions like we are right now, um, and it'll provide a greater sense of unity and global collaboration. I think I had a similar reaction looking at it from an international politics perspective. Um, so most, you know, what I study is decision-making rules and standard practices. Most organizations, institutions keep it pretty secret because that is kind of like your secret sauce. I think it's fascinating that that's being exposed and it's very transparent, um, which is a very unusual thing in the, in the sciences. So I thought that was pretty extraordinary. Why is this an unusual thing in the sciences? I mean... Like scientists tend to cooperate more than a lot of other people. That they also, I think, as you say, like they like to keep their secrets. How do we break down those barriers? Oh, I think it's incentive structures. It's like the way that academic institutions and universities kind of promote people is your publications and your data, and you're trying to always have unique data, trying to push the creative like new thing. There's not a lot of incentives to share that data with others to give other people an advantage, right? It's, it's. Uh, I don't know. I think it boils down to incentive systems. Joseph, do you feel those pressures? You study insects, you discover bees. When you've got something new and novel, do you feel the pressure to keep it to yourself until the time that it gets published? You know, there there kind of is some of that pressure. Maybe it's kind of a fear of of someone scooping the data or publishing it before you. Uh, I, I've definitely felt that before on different projects we've worked on, is I always wonder in the back of my mind, is there another team of researchers doing the same thing or asking the same question? But I also see, as we've been talking about, that if you could unite as multiple research teams together, you could really address bigger problems and more more complicated problems by combining all of the brain power together. So let's unite our brain power together. What questions would we like answered from the dark side of the moon? Sheena? Um, I think we really want to know what the environment is like there and what can thrive, much like incredibly deep sea dives have found that life exists in a way that we never thought possible. Is there a possibility to have life on the dark side of the moon or that that ever could support that kind of an ecosystem? And indeed there is. There are growing plants up there. And I think that will be a fascinating thing to see what that looks like. Well, that's going to be important, too. I mean, like being able to grow stuff on the moon, if what the Chinese want to do, and I think what a lot of people want to do, is put an outpost on the moon. If we do that, we're going to probably have to grow stuff up there. I'm wondering, guys, would you want to be part of the outpost? No. (laughs) Definitely no. (laughs) That's two no's. Shafali, Grace? Yeah, not, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a no as well. Wow, really? Okay, I, this is fascinating to me. I, I want to know about your nose. Uh, well, as a biologist, I study life, and I'm fascinated <laughs> by life, and the dark side of the moon uh, that we know of has no life. And there's probably very little chance for, at least not native life, right? There's now some plant that they're growing. So you'd like to visit, maybe? I wouldn't mind seeing it, but it's dark, so... I I think these kind of missions are incredibly stressful, and you're dealing with people under incredibly high-stress situations, and that just doesn't really sound like a lot of fun to me. The U.S. has crashed a probe into the far side of the moon, but that was back in 2014, and movement toward other U.S. missions has been pretty slow. China, meanwhile, has several robotic missions that are lined up behind this one, and it's considering manned missions in the next decade. What does it mean that China is taking the mantle of exploring Luna? 
one thing that I worry about a little bit is, again, that sharing of information. Um, and I'm hoping that we have the political will on this planet to share that information. But when you have a country like China that traditionally has really clamped down on a lot of information sharing, um, looking at just their internet restrictions for their people, things like that, I think that I worry about what is going to happen there. Um, I'm sure there's some military concern that I'm not taking into consideration. But for me, it's just looking at how much access will we have to that data and what will that look like? People might also be worried about China taking the lead on this. The United States might feel threatened. So we might also start our own missions as well as put more money, hopefully, into science, starting up another space race um, like we saw decades before. Now, that could be a really good thing, though, right? Like, I mean, like that competition breeding a desire to do more science. I mean, the the Cold War was not a good thing for the Earth, but it wasn't a bad thing for space exploration. So I agree. So in, in strategy management, there's something called the first mover advantage. So it's always, you know, businesses trying to get out there first. But there is also a second mover advantage in the sense that now that China has done it, we can kind of, especially since we have access to things, kind of build on that. There is a second mover advantage. And I think um, now it's going to kind of push the military potentially to kind of be investing a lot into uh, space exploration. Let's turn to an advancement uh, that is really shifting the way we think about the assumptions that we make. Back in 2016, in the journal Cell Physiology, two researchers suggested it might be time to reconsider the blend of sugar salts, vitamins, and amino acids that has been used for 60 years by researchers who want to grow and study animal cells in the lab. That paper didn't get a lot of attention, but this month in the journal Science Advances, another team of researchers pointed out that perhaps not surprisingly, cells grown in a different medium seem to react very differently under experimental conditions. I've got to say, guys, this kind of terrifies me because this medium, which is called Eagle's Minimal Essential Medium, or EMEM, is a bedrock of our research. Just about everybody uses it or some variant of it, a close variant of it, and has been doing so for decades. And very few people questioned whether there was a better way of doing things until really quite recently. What jumped out to you guys about this story? Um, I think the fear that I felt that you might have felt as well was really palpable for me. I was thinking about the amazing amount of medical research that goes on using that um, medium and thinking are we doing our cancer research wrong? Are we doing our autoimmune disease research wrong because we're not properly replicating how a human cell interacts with nutrients? And that was really kind of shaking the bedrock of what we have based our science on for so long. What came to mind for me is a term called reductionism. This is something I preach to my students a lot. So it, reductionism is this idea that you take a complex system and you reduce it to simpler components so we can understand it, so we can teach it, and so we can ask questions about it. So reductionism is a useful tool for science, but it's dangerous when we as scientists uh, kind of fail to realize we're using reductionism. So for example, they reduced uh, the, this cell growth medium to a simple component so we could try to grow cells. That's a beneficial thing. But as soon as we forget or fail to realize that we have oversimplified this, and then we make bigger assumptions based on this oversimplified system, then a lot of stuff can go wrong, as we're seeing. And it happens in all of the sciences, but especially in life sciences, living things are hard to study. So we use reductionism, but we have to always remember that we are oversimplifying this. Grace, we're talking about living things. Can you chime in there? Are there assumptions in your field that you've been thinking about challenging? 
this article really resonated with me because we have similar problems in ecology. And so we do experiments in the lab, and then we try to translate those um, experiments and findings to the field uh, in nature. And sometimes we do find that what we see in the lab doesn't necessarily match up what we see in the wild because there are so many interacting factors. And we try to isolate things in the lab and make them as simple as possible under controlled scenarios but they don't always work out uh, to our benefit. So this idea really drives home that studying things in the lab and nature are equally as important to help us understand things and have a foothold, but also that looking things in a larger perspective and a larger picture is also important. Shafali, can you talk about that from your vantage of studying uh, management and decision-making? Yeah, sure. So um, so one of the big uh, assumptions in the decision-making literature is that people don't think enough. So it's the idea that because of the limitations of the human mind, we are always susceptible to biases, so we don't process enough information. And it kind of reminded me, like, analogy is that, like, that is kind of like a basic underlying assumption in the literature, but we've shown it so many times in the laboratory, but if you look at real-world settings, especially high-risk environments, so whether that's, like, law enforcement, uh, military, emergency medical rescue, when people need to make quick decisions, actually one of the errors is that people think too much um, and that they actually need to reduce their thinking because they need to follow standard rules because they're under extreme time pressures. So I kind of, when I was reading this article, kind of reminded me of like moving into the laboratory and then trying to relate it to actual real world decision making going back from the real world back into the laboratory it is just it's very difficult it is a problem that many scientists i think face um, but it is something that we got to keep on mind um, is kind of relating the laboratory to the real world and back and iterating back and forth to make sure that we're aligned with how people actually operate let's talk about another very complex system One of the challenges being faced by researchers studying whales is that whale calls might be quite a bit different now than in the past. Four new papers on the complexity of whale songs are suggesting that these calls are not only more complex, but they're also evolving quite quickly such that even if we could somehow decipher whale language, so to speak, by the time we did, that language would have changed. I loved this finding that humpback whale songs change over time. They become more and more complex until really quite suddenly the whales all seem to agree that things have gotten too complex and they all start a song again that's much simpler from a basic melody. It's beautiful. It's like jazz. That's exactly what I thought about is it's like an improvisational group of musicians and they they keep going and going and at some point it kind of falls apart and it's not fun to listen to. And so hopefully they recognize that as musicians and they kind of start over. And that's what these whales were doing. It's pretty neat. I just loved how this spoke to the intelligence of these animals. Um, And I think we often forget that in our human ego that we think we are just so darn clever. And in fact, there are other creatures out there that are incredibly clever as well. Um, And looking at this, um, I was thinking in the back of my mind kind of a Douglas Adams moment of maybe they're just laughing a little bit at us that we're just understanding this now. Grace Shafali, what do you guys think these animals are telling us? Um, I think they're basically mimicking how people make uh, the the kind of the downsides of having too many complex rules in like uh, in organizations. And I, I thought it was kind of fascinating how animals are kind of mimicking this idea. It's like the best uh, 
best way to operate in environments is to simplify, simplify, simplify. So like when you have over complex communication patterns and rules, you kind of have to go back to the basics sometimes in order to make better decisions. So I thought that was kind of funny. I like the story in that it also highlights the theme that there's still a lot left to discover on our own planet. And there's still a lot of cool and unanswered questions right here on Earth. And in some aspects, we know more about the moon than we do of our own home. Let's move from one of the world's largest animals to one of the world's largest organisms. Back in the 1990s, scientists described an enormous and singularly genetic parasitic mold that they estimated to cover about 30 acres of forest in Michigan. This month, some of those scientists came back with some new estimates. They now think they might have misestimated the size of this humongous fungus. And in fact, it might be even bigger, five times bigger, in fact. To get this big, scientists estimate that the Michigan fungus has to also be really, really old. And as organisms get old, their cells split apart and they copy themselves. And over time, they mutate. And over a lot of time, they mutate a lot. But the researchers say that this thing hasn't mutated much at all. Its DNA indicates that only about 160 mutations, which is like nothing, And this is sort of like a mass of cells that is on the opposite side of the spectrum from cancer, which mutates a lot. What might we learn from this thing? So many human diseases are caused by mutations during cell division. So because this fungus has a very low mutation rate, it provides the opportunity to help us understand how perfect cell division occurs and how to avoid those manifestations of particular diseases that are plaguing humans, like cancer. There's a lot of unknowns still in this study, but I liked how the researchers kind of um, made some potential suggestions of what might be happening. So they said it could be that the fungus is just really good at repairing these errors, because we all have enzymes in us that kind of proofread our DNA after it gets copied and make repairs, but maybe this fungus is just really good at it. So that's one possibility. Another possibility could be that it just has really kind of low rates of, of mitosis. So it's copying its DNA in a slower rate. Or it could just be, this was the most interesting one to me, they suggested there's a possibility that it could be choosing which DNA it passes on as it does these cell divisions, choosing the best copies. It's different than us. Fungus is different than us. It doesn't copy the DNA and grow in the same way. Sometimes there's one cell with multiple nuclei, for example. So it can copy the DNA but not the, divide the cell. So there's definitely a different system, but it has a lot of potential questions that could lead to cool answers. Sheena, I'm wondering if you reflected, as I did, on just the idea that there was this huge, massive thing. I mean, they thought it was 30 acres, which is huge. It turns out to be five times as big as that, which is huge. We didn't even know. I mean, we knew there was a big thing, but we didn't have any concept of how big it was. Right. And I think, um, much like I said earlier, there is so much on this planet we just don't know about. And that makes it really exciting to get to explore the biological sciences for sure on this planet because there's so much life we don't know about. And I found that absolutely fascinating that there is this just, as you said, humongous fungus out there that we had no idea about and is potentially going to lend some really interesting insights into uh, replication and how you survive for that long. Finally, I'd like to turn to some social science. This month, researchers writing for Journalism and Mass Communication Quarterly reported that people over the age of 65 are quite a bit more likely than other age groups to share fake news. 
and not by a little. On average, older Facebook users shared nearly seven times more fake news articles than younger users. What do we take from this? So when I read this, it made me think of the retirement community my grandparents lived in for a long time because they would come up with really interesting ideas that were obviously quite false. And we would try, my aunt is an anthropologist, so she and I would try and question them a little bit about where the information came from. And it came from Sally down the street who got it from Dottie over here, who got it from Frank down the road. Um, And no one could cite where the source of this bad information was coming from, but it was 100% believed. And it was absolutely passed on as if it were a truth. And it was so disturbing, but so fascinating to see how that information traveled that way. Shafali, did this information surprise you? It absolutely surprised me. So in social science, like one of the big things is like everybody lives in their bu- in their own bubble, right? So it's the similar to me hypothesis is that we are attracted to people and tend to talk to people who are similar to us. So I was really curious, like why young people weren't just as likely as older people to share fake news, right? Because fake news, the reason why it gets shared is that it just confirms our prior hypotheses and beliefs. And once it confirms our beliefs, we just go ahead and share with other people as though it, it is true. So I found it extremely surprising, and I was looking at the discussion section to see kind of the hypotheses that they, the researchers were trying to explain of why older people, and a lot of it does have to do potentially with memory, um, but it also reminded me of the research on expertise development. So the more and more that we become experts in that, which is, you know, older people, the more and more we become entrenched. Um, and I guess, you know, as youth who are still, you know, trying to build those expertise, you're not as entrenched in your worldviews as we kind of once thought. So, yeah, I thought it was surprising, and I was was curious about the underlying explanations for the phenomenon. We're getting close to the end of our show, but in the time we have left, I'd love to hear about a study or science news story that you ran into since the start of the year and that you think more people should be talking about. Uh, Shivali, can we start with you? Sure. Um, So there was an article on Big Zinc. uh, It's titled, When Should We Stop Trying to Save the Patient and Focus on Saving the Organs? And I raised this fascinating question of what is death? So, you know, we talk a lot about life and, like, what is the purpose of life, etc. But I thought this article is really interesting when it's like, well, how do we define death? And it's fascinating because there are biological things and there are cultural things. So on the biological side, your body actually does not die all at once. Um, so even if your heart stops, your cellular activity can still be detected. So there are issues on that side. It's going to become a big question as we continue to extend human lifespan. When exactly should doctors call it? It's, I think, a big ethical issue and, and also a big decision-making issue for our hospitals. Grace, what did you read about this month that you think more people should be reading about? So there's an article published in the journal Science uh, where researchers modified a plant and it yielded 40% greater productivity. So we could feed up to 200 million additional people with the calories lost from photorespiration in the Midwestern United States each year with that amount of increased productivity. And Joe, is there a story or a study that you ran into this month that you'd like to share? Yeah, there was this really neat one. And of course, it's about bees because I love bees. But it's about this relationship between bees and flowers. So we know that bees like flowers. We know flowers rely on bees for reproduction. We know that bees are attracted to flowers. But there's this new study out of, it's a team of researchers in Israel that actually 
looked at the sound of bees and how that sound is picked up by the flowers. So flowers are hearing the bees from up to 20 centimeters away. So when they hear the bee, they actually increase the sugar production in their nectar. So increase the reward for the bees. Within like two minutes, they'll increase the sugar production. So these researchers show that there's a close relationship between the pollinator and the plant. So if it's the wrong sound, the plant doesn't respond the same. So one interesting question that they raise is how does these anthropogenic sounds, like human sounds, traffic, for example, how does that influence the flower? Does the flower think that traffic sounds like a bee? And then what does that do for the nectar production for when the bees do come? My mind is blown right now. (laughs) Sheena, what did you read about this month that you'd like to share? So I found one in uh, the journal Cell, and it was looking at autoimmune disease, specifically multiple sclerosis, and it was looking at certain cells in the gut and what effect they had on inflammation in the brain. And their findings are pointing to the possibility that if you increase a certain cell in the gut biome, it will reduce the amount of inflammation in the brain, um, which is ostensibly a way to stop demyelination, to stop the damage done by something like MS. And I found that absolutely fascinating because I have read several studies in the last little while here looking at the gut more and more and how much impact what's happening there is having on the rest of the human body. We're going to try to get researchers from all of those studies on Undisciplined in the next month. But we're going to have to leave the discussion there. Grace Dorenzo, Joseph Wilson, Shafali Pottle, and Sheena McFarland, thank you all for joining us on the Undisciplined Monthly News Roundup. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That was thank fun. Thank you for having us. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.